I am Brian Brinkman. You are tuned in to episode 76 of the Beyond the Pond podcast. This is the podcast in which, generally speaking, Brian and myself utilize the music of Fish as a means of introducing the listener to other music. These are usually not jam bands because we love Fish. We are Fish fans. But the problem with Fish fans is sometimes they get a bit myopic only focus on their favorite artist can recall stats and dates and song times and everything about their favorite band under the sun but you introduce other bands to them and they stare at you blankly and it is our duty to change that absolutely is and today tonight wherever you may be whenever this may be we are doing that in a very special way. Mm. I know we say that every time we do this is special, but it really is. You only get to hear us once a week, once every other week, once every couple of weeks. So every time we get together, it's special. But this time, we really mean it's special. Today, we are covering a jam that we have literally been talking about since the first month of Beyond the Pond. It is a jam that was brought to us from our northern neighbors. It is a jam from one of the best songs in Fish's entire catalog, if you could call it a song. And it's a jam that is dedicated to our very first fan. We will get into this here in a second, but I am talking about none other than the version of Tweezer from Vancouver, British Columbia. It was performed on September 9th, 1999. 20 years ago today. Mm. Nine, 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 nine. The Herman Cain tweezer. <laughs> Some people get that joke, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, I fucking love this jam. Some of the themes that we're going to explore include tribal rhythmic jamming, electrocution, and a brief history of fish in Canada, and the tragically hip. And on that note, let's get to the fish.
I'm settling in here for a traditional BTP episode. But is it really traditional? It is not. Because this episode is dedicated, like we said at the top, to our very first fan, Miss Kathleen Hinkle, who you can find at Van City Visuals, as well as the at Mike Side Dyke Side account. Kathleen was one of I think the first person to retweet our episodes, to respond with enthusiasm to our episodes, to engage with us as though what we were doing actually mattered. And as a result, we've been talking about doing this episode for years now, but always find found ourselves either having just covered a tweezer because Fish played a really good one on their recent tour, or having just covered a 99 episode, we wanted to give a little bit of diversity. So here we are now two and a half years into this whole crazy thing. And we're finally doing the Vancouver tweezer. Kathleen, this one is for you. Hmm. According to the fishnet jam charts, this tweezer coasts along in a dull fashion, but then eventually goes batshit crazy with a huge peak. Ends with space. Must hear. I would agree with that. I would too. It's a really interesting version in that uh, it sounds like a very traditional tweezer right out the gates, especially like a traditional 99, 98 groove. Um, but then, man, it just peaks in such an intense way and ends with this really cool spacious, uh, like spacious atmospheric sound before fading into bug in a really perfect fa- perfect way. Yeah, this tweezer kind of... Um vamps along kind of like funky standard 99 form and then out of nowhere we say it's like trey put his finger into like a light socket because then his guitar he just kind of loses all he's like soloing and fanning and playing like he doesn't realize the rest of the band is there <laughs> just, and what's kind of a shame that this is only i think only available and kind of um the audience tape is the only one I've heard. I'm sure if there's a good soundboard out there, let us know. Send it away because we'd love to hear it. If there's something out in the Fish archives, this would make a fantastic live uh, from the archives release because I don't think the recordings quite do it justice, but it's just – it goes normal and then it's anything but. It just gets loud and crazy and – like Jerry Garcia style fanning and panning and very 99 and um, very kind of fucked up, but in a good way. Yeah. And uh, some other 99 versions that this made us really think of. 710 from Camden. I love this jam. I don't know how you feel about this. I feel like this gets a reputation of being just a little bit too mellow. Well, there was a guy who... Um, wrote about this tweezer actually in volume two of the fish companion he called it sloppy and molasses slow and that guy actually he shares my name and he uh he still kind of feels that way about this tweezer (laughs) i love it uh you then get 717 and oswego segues really nicely into have mercy 724 from alpine valley tweezer and a catapult into tweezer and just one of the wildest shows that fish has ever performed outside of even 1999 what else do we got 918 from Shula Vista Shula Vista knows how to party show opening bliss tweezer then we got October 2nd from Minneapolis 
set two opener is a fantastic show and it goes into on your way down is that correct goes right now on your way down it's one of my favorite shows it's got an amazing piper amazing split open and melt as well and it's uh december 10th from philadelphia of course i was at that show tweezer was the show opener it's a fantastic way to kick things off i think between the tweezer and um probably the best part of that show actually and then the second set had some john fishman i think crackling rosie like running around madness but probably not as good as December 11th, uh, Philadelphia, for sure. Right. And then it ends with uh, 1216 from Raleigh. Uh, similar, in a sense, to the Camden 09 tweezer, in the sense that nobody was expecting a tweezer this late in the second set. And it might be the best. It's definitely my favorite tweezer of 1999. The riff that Trey has there is so heroic. So powerful. Um, I would list, I, I, I listen to that on a daily basis if I could. So in terms of the significance of the show and the run, this was the Fall 99 tour opener. It had lots of debuts. This is the first Mozambique as a show opener, uh, the first in-law Josie Wales, first First Tube. Of course, uh, both Josie Wales and First Tube, they would be featured throughout the remainder of Fish 1.0. This show took place at the GM Palace. For some reason, I always pictured in my head as being this, like, stately theater because it was Canadian <laughs> in Vancouver, but it's just a hockey arena. This is where the Vancouver Canucks play. I think it's called the Rogers Center now. Uh, and I know it was home for the basketball team, the Grizzlies, before the franchise got moved to Memphis, Tennessee. And I think um, Fish played Mozambique four times in 99 ever played it again they even teased it as far back as uh the week of pog from island tour yes uh, april 3rd 98 obviously it never caught on as the fist jam but i think it's arguably the single most song played by the trey anastasio band so if you want to get your mozambique fix and fulfill your solo uh i guess i could say fulfill your quota of awesome trombone solos from natalie cressman you can find Mozambique at any tap show. Absolutely. And uh, this show featured some pretty big jams in uh, Stash and Ghost, as well as the Tweezer. I think we would say this was a really strong tour opener overall. It continues some of the major trends of summer 1999, which is one of our favorite tours, uh, as you can tell by the number of uh, jams that we have featured from that tour. Yeah, just worth mentioning briefly that actually uh, first tube of Mozambique, well this is the first time Fish have played them. Their actual proper debuts took place in April 1998 at uh, the 8-foot fluorescent tube show at uh, Club Toast in Burlington, Vermont. I think that might have been the first show that Trey played with the uh, famous tab rhythm section of mm-hmm. Tony Markellis and Russ Lawton. So yeah, that was kind of the genesis for those songs. But yeah, this is uh, it's a very strong tour opener. It's very 1999 that it's just all over the place. This was one of the four times that year they played the Jimmy Smith organ slow jam back at the Chicken Shack. Also has a very speedy Choctaw's torture, very languid, funky ghost. I mean, we talk about 99 a lot on this show, and we think it's probably worthy of its own entirely separate fish podcast if somebody wanted to do each show from 1999 that's 
a fish podcast, we would welcome. It's a crowded field, but there's an idea. If someone wanted to do that, we'd listen to it. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so from here, uh, the band would move on to the Gorge as well as uh, Portland, Oregon for playing a standout show in Boise on September 14th, 1999. Uh, jam from that show, the ACDC bag that we covered in episode 45 with Jake Cohen. And then we also covered uh, Fall 99 Tour in full in episode 38 on the Memphis 2001. So in some way, we have channeled the journey of the Vancouver slash Memphis Grizzlies through Beyond the Pond, which is yet another, mm. another, uh, yeah, subgenre of Beyond the Pond is how we fuse our favorite sports into these podcasts. <laughs> the Mobius of Beyond the Pond. <laughs> exactly. Um, but as we noted at the top, we wanted to cover a brief history of fish in Canada. And as you're going to hear a little bit later on this episode by a very special guest, uh, we may or may not have had some very aggressive opinions about the recent Toronto show from June 2019. And uh, one of us may or may not have said that fish should reconsider playing in Canada again based on the performance. And so <laughs> we are here to, uh, I guess, as, as they would say, eat crow. And uh, we went through every fish show in Canada, uh, of which there aren't that many, all things considered, but there are some really good ones. And we've come up with a list of highlights that we would encourage all of you to, to uh, take note of, to go back through the Realist app, Fish app, Live Fish app, and uh, play some of these. So we're going to unveil them here for you. So starting in 1989, July 1st, 89, uh, they played in Montreal. Very notable for an encore of Immigrant Song into Fluffhead. Jumping ahead three years, again in Montreal. I believe this was a live fish release, 12 13 It's a very, very strong 1992 show overall. A year that I want to try to figure out a way to cover here on this on this uh, podcast in the future because I'm a huge 1992 fan and the sound here is just so clear and just full of youthful energy that would go on to be translated into just zany madness in 1993 uh and four months later in vancouver april 3rd 1993 which would have been my dad's 37th birthday which is really insane to think about uh they played in vancouver uh, we covered the night before from bellingham in episode 23 uh, this show features a really bizarre Mr. Neil Young quote repeated over and over again in the Yem vocal jet that I, you just have to hear. So going from there, we've got April 29th, 1993 in Montreal. Weekapog, Makasupa, and some very advanced spring 1993 jamming. Classic show from Toronto, August 93, 8993. That's the one with the Choctaw's Torture. Into the Band of Gypsies classic, who knows? Back in the Choctaw's Torture, Split Open and Melt, Tweezer, and You Enjoy Myself all hit massive August 1993 peaks. August 24, 1993 from Vancouver, very high energy and exploratory Mike Screw from August 93, a killer Mike song, a week of pog. 
In spring and early summer 94, the band uh, played, I believe, five shows in uh, five or six shows in Canada. We're going to talk about four of them here. April 5th, 94 from Montreal. It's got a very melodic tweezer that's a must here. April 6th from Toronto. Excellent stash, a fiery down with disease and an incredible mic song. July 5th from Ottawa. It's got an excellent gin that builds on the phenomenal 42494 version from um, uh, I believe Charlotte and then July 6 1994 again from Montreal just three months later might be the best Reba ever I don't want to make a, Reba. I don't want to make a false claim but I mean it's an amazing Reba isn't it top five by yeah far, easily just the jam they go into the middle this building melodic if they broke something like that out now in Reba, the unit would break. Exactly. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and this show is notable for the fact that it features Fluffhead, Reba, Tweezer, and Hood, which is the kind of setless hijink that you just cannot expect post-1994. And Tweezer and Hood are both really, really good in set two. I highly recommend anybody who hasn't heard 7694 to go back and listen to it. My good friend Moshe Bersaker was at that show. And then he was 15 years old. I think they played Sparkle because he got really excited from hearing Sparkle. He said he was jumping up and down. And yeah, if you're 15 years old and in Jewish youth groups, you will jump up and down at Sparkle. <laughs> we got, ah, October 6th, 1995, Vancouver. Fantastic wild tweezer to keyboard army. Was that the second night of the tour? I think. Uh, no, it was oh, about a weekend. Right. They started in late September, and uh, uh, I believe Shoreline might have been the tour opener. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. 929.95 in Shoreline. Not a great show, actually. But, um, no. Wait, was that ugh, Expo? That was Expo Center? I'm blanking on it, but it was somewhere in California, like, and then they moved yeah. up north, and they that was the only time they've ever played Missoula, Montana, was uh, two days later, 10.895 is what I know. Okay. That's right. All right. So going forward, November 23rd, 1996 from Vancouver. Excellent Mike screw in the second set, peaking with a very wild and dissonant Wikipog. Mac is super highlights at the bus experience issues getting through Border Patrol. Oh, that was the one with like, uh, like guard dog in my bunk. Yes. Yes. Okay. <laughs> and we've got July 20th, 1999 from Toronto. Big ghost in set one. Set two was highlighted by the 2001 to Misty Mountain Hop. This was the Toronto show where in the recent New York Times interview with Trey, the interviewer David Marchese said that he uh, thought he was controlling the band during that 2001. And Trey said, you might have been. <laughs> and Trey went on to say, that show had the flood, which wasn't true because the flood was in 2013. <laughs> but I could see why Trey might have gotten confused. Going forward, July 6th of 2000, another amazing Reba from Canada. Of course, there was July 6th, 94. July 6th, 2000, gigantic Reba opener in in Toronto. Excellent MoMA dance, which I think was on like an archival release. Yes. Okay. Very strong summer 2000 show. And then the last two we have... July 22nd, 2013 from Toronto. Of course, that was the show that had to get rescheduled because of a huge rainstorm. It rained a lot that summer. Great down with disease and very strong 3.0 version of Bowie. And then June 18, 1999 from Toronto. 
were told there was a fish show that night. Was there? I'm not positive. I think I think that they played that night. Um, there was a I, band that sounded like fish that played that night. Yes, there. The, the final hurrah is worth noting, but that's all I recall. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> really, really good. And then they pulled the ripcord on that one. <laughs> so. Let's play a segment of the tweezer from nine nine ninety nine. That's uh, make sure your hands are not wet when you're walking around in electrical sockets because we wouldn't want you to get electrocuted like Trey does.
Right. Nobody's stuck any forks into a socket. Everybody's hair is matted down. Nobody's looking like Doc from Back to the Future. We're all Back good. Back to the Future. Because we're going to be talking right now a little bit more about electrocution. <laughs> so that tweezer was a very electric version of the jam, if you will. And we're going to talk about two songs that we believe are quite electric as well. First of which, in the spirit of an episode dedicated to our first fan, I'm going to feature an artist that I don't think I featured since episode one. And that is LCD Sound System. The song I'm going to feature here is Dance Yourself Clean off of the 2010 record, This Is Happening. So this was the nine-minute opening track to the, quote, final LCD sound system record titled This Is Happening. It's one of the best openers to one of the best albums of the decade and also one of the best album titles of the entire 21st century. This begins with like 90 seconds of slow drums, keynotes, James Murphy's melancholic vocals before it just explodes into one of the best indie dance moments of all time. You talk about electrocution right out the gates. This album is pretty fascinating for me. It was a fascinating grower throughout this decade. Probably was my most anticipated album of early 2010. And I remember being initially disappointed. And I didn't totally understand the really positive reviews it was getting. And I kind of justified this down to the fact that I think I still just hate the song Drunk Girls. And that really tainted the It's a really bad song. It's a really bad song. It did no place being a lead single. And No, God. I don't understand why that song made any sort of a record. No. That song, like, it feels like it should be used as soundtrack, like some awful Girls Gone Wild, like late 90s, early 2000s. 100%. And it just, uh, yeah. I, uh, I hated the song, and it really just took over my, my view of the album. But then a couple years later, 2013, I was back in Korea, and uh, I used to go to this Western bar in Seoul that had a vinyl DJ. He'd play songs by request. It was super awesome. And of note, there was also uh, that really funny fish bumper sticker that they're, I think it's from like 99. They're all cartoons that are like sitting down, and like Mike's wearing sunglasses and his mouth open. Um, I had it on my car when I was like a junior in high school, but I was like slapped up onto the wall of the, uh, of the bar and I just felt like I was at home. Um, but speaking of home, someone played, someone requested the song home by LCD sound system that closes this album deep into the night of like a big night out in Seoul. And I remember just like being so happy and realizing that it was one of the best songs of the decade. And it threw me down a wormhole with this album all over again. And I realized songs like One Touch, All I Want, I Can Change, Pow Pow, and Home are all classics for LCD sound system, in addition to Dance Yourself Clean. Uh, I went on to see the band on this tour. I thought it was so, so good. They seemed to have really discovered this way to communicate their live band, dance music sound in such a loose and tight way as possible. And then a year later, they were broken up seemingly for good before returning in 2017, which 
Oddly enough, that gap, gap of albums of 2010 to 2017 is not that strange when you take into account however many bands in the 2010s released records in the early part of the decade and then not again for six or seven years. Um, but the record in 2017, American Dream, that came out uh, was one of my favorites of that year. And uh, I highly recommend anyone here who's a fan, fan of the podcast to listen to that. Um, so we're going to go ahead here and listen to a bit of the introduction to Dance Yourself Clean, where the song just explodes in your face. And I uh, hope you guys enjoy it. fantastic record i don't think i liked um this is happening quite as much as you did it has some very good songs and i just i had such a hard time getting around drunk girls yeah <laughs> that it just it, it killed it for me but songs like all i want is good like you said dance yourself clean is very good it's um then the whole thing where they broke up and played the garden they never play again they had the whole like documentary where he's crying but i I can forgive, and I like the American Dream a whole lot. So, the album that I'm going to pick out, or I should say the band, is a, a band that's called Major Stars, and the song is called I Don't Believe. So, Major Stars, it's a, a long-running, Boston-based, psychedelic garage rock project kind of revolving around its two founding members, Wayne Rogers and Kate Bigar, Bigger. I think it's how it's pronounced. They are both guitarists. Um, throughout the years, they picked up, lost, and swapped out members throughout the late 90s and 2000s, right up through the 2010s. The constants being um, what seems like a rotating cast of female lead vocalists and endless, endless guitar solos and fuzz. So really, the main reason I'm talking about this band right now is that when I uh, thought about the 9999 tweezer which trey has like you know nearly oblivious roof shaking guitar solos where it almost seems like he ignores the rest of the band he's in his own world and he's just flailing away and this immediately called to mind one of the times i saw major stars live i think it was opening for mission of burma about nine years ago there was three bands 
they were the second band. And all I can remember is they take the stage and in front of the jump, there's just this older guy with like frizzy hair taking guitar solos. He's making faces at his guitar like it's a rabid dog. He's like trying to put down. He's like ooing on and eyeing on and just like sparks are flying off his guitar. That's Wayne Rogers. And there was like four or five other musicians on stage that he was just ignoring. It was just like an endless stream of masturbatorily awesome guitar solos. Truly, this is a guitar that's going to fuck your face. It didn't matter what was going on or did he seem concerned with the rest of the band was doing. It was like a weird version of like rock and roll fantasy camp. And ever since then, I've been a major stars fan. And it turns out that they actually just put out a new record last month called with the, the usual understatement, Roots of Confusion, Seeds of Joy. They have yet another new vocalist named Noelle Dorsey. And uh, I think she's a little higher in the mix than usual. She doesn't sound that drastically different than their prior vocalists. But the, this album's actually a pretty good intro way into the band because the songs are catchy and anthemic, pretty approachable. Uh, I haven't seen them live in a while, but I have a tendency to think that uh, song structure would go completely out the window in favor of just letting Wayne Rogers like take crazy guitar solos. But uh, the song I'm going to play is uh, the second song on the record, I Don't Believe, which is a little more streamlined than what they sound like live. Uh, could almost be a potential single, but heck of a rock song. What a great chorus. And this is a, a band that's worth checking out and playing very loudly. I know at one time they were contemporaries of uh, the old Ethan Miller band, Comets on Fire. Sound kind of similar. So let's listen to I Don't Believe of the recent Major Stars album. guys 
taking a quick break here before we move on to segment two. So we want to thank you guys all for uh, checking in on our top albums of 2014 and 2015 back in uh, mid-August, as well as listening to our episode remembering David Berman and then our Dicks episode. Uh, we haven't done a proper new album recommendations in about a month now. And there's been a lot of really good music that's come out here in the last bit of 2019, and we want to definitely highlight that. I'm going to highlight a record, a debut album from a Tokyo-based freak jazz group named DeLoreans. The album is called DeLoreans. This is another one of the Beyond Beyond is Beyond records that we have just become obsessed with here in the last year. These are wild, long-haired Japanese 20-somethings that will make you think of Zappa immediately. And honestly, you cannot mention this album without mentioning Frank Zappa, who is a, quote, god to the five members of DeLoreans. The band calls their music pataphysical, and everything about this album is packed into 32 mind-bending minutes of music. If you enjoyed the Sunwatchers record from earlier this year, you are sure to love this. It is a wild, wild ride. Improv, jazz, prog rock, noise, funk, all of it swirls into a fascinating stew of music that could only come out of Tokyo, it seems. Uh, I've been blasting this record a ton. It's a really good running record. It is a great record when you need to just kind of zone out and just have so many thoughts buzzing in your head and you need music to reflect that. It's a really good driving album. It's been very good in the summertime. It's just a wild, wild representation of um, what's going on over in Tokyo from a jazz standpoint. It's just super bizarre, super mind-blowing. I could not recommend it more to our viewers here or listeners here at Beyond the Pond. Um, I think that if you've enjoyed a lot of the music that we featured over the past um, year here, especially a lot of the stuff that we talked about from uh, Beyond Beyond is Beyond in the episode from earlier in the year, you will definitely dig this. So DeLoreans, DeLoreans, cannot recommend, recommend it enough. Dave, what do you got for us? That DeLoreans album is fantastic. I've been listening to it quite a bit. And if you're talking Zappa specifically, it reminds me of the Zappa album – Weasel's Rip My Flesh, which I think is from 1970, maybe a little bit earlier. But that's the uh, album that combines uh, studio music with live music and is constantly changing time signatures and is being willfully difficult, yet uh, extremely good and fascinating at the same time. It contains uh, quite imaginative song titles like the Eric Dolphy Memorial Barbecue, the Orange County Lumber Truck, Toads of the Short Forest. There's even like some Broadway mixed into it. It's just all over the place and constantly shifting time signatures. I like the DeLorean's record, which uh, I think you described it very well. And that's quite good. It covers a lot of ground in 32 minutes. So the album that I have is... Uh, the latest album from the uh, seminal 90s dream pop shoegaze band Ride. This is actually their second post-comeback album. The, uh, I guess their official comeback album, Weather Diaries, came out in 2017. So this is the second album from, uh, I guess, Ride Mark II, as you could say. 
Um, Weather Diaries was okay. Kind of felt like a band tentatively dipping their toe back in to see if they still had fans and what they're going to do with those fans. Some of it's a little bit silly, but uh, this album is better than Weather Diaries. I might even say that this Ride album is maybe their best since uh, their second album, Going Blank Again. Of course, the two Ride albums which follow that one uh, being Carnival of Light and Tarantula kind of skewed a bit dorky classic rock but uh get the new right album this is not a safe place it kind of has an abstract sense of humor and that it starts off with an insanely funny flex a song called r-i-d-e it's an instrumental the 18 seconds in it drops out and the female voice goes ride so they're uh they're feeling themselves a little bit yeah this album it's got the uh like pretty jangly dream pop ballads that they made their name on it definitely has some uh shoegaze noise but it also they're kind of like pushing things forward there's a song called repetition that almost sort of sounds like an electronic like pet shop boys type thing going on um there's a song called jump jet which is just a really excellent rock song there's some longer songs that go places just it's, it's a band that sounds like a lot more confident it seems like they know they have an audience now. It seems like people listen to their comeback, listen to their comeback record, and they liked it. They've been playing a lot of shows, and this is just kind of where they're they're all in. They're really gonna make a go of it in um, in 2019. So I know if they're coming to New York in September. Gonna try to go see them. So if uh, you have a feel for the shoegaze and dream pop, or just some interesting Brit rock. Check out This Is Not A Safe Place by Ride. All right, so uh, for our second segment of this episode, this is uh, something I've kind of wanted an excuse to do for a long time. And uh, we're talking about Canadian fish, talking about Canadian jam. So I figured this would be a good time to do a bit of a mini deep dive on a band that could be considered... I guess, like Canada's band, almost as much as you associate someone like Bruce Springsteen with America. I think when you think of Canada, one of the first things that should come to mind is the Tragically Hip. That's a band I know I've mentioned a few times on this podcast. We've never really gone deep. And uh, to help us out, wanted to have on the podcast our friend Scotty King. I know he was recently on Helping Friendly Pod to talk about the Toronto show. He's, How's it uh, going? He's- yeah, he's been a fan of the podcast, and he is a true Canadian and um, a big fan of the Tragically Hip when they uh, were a viable entity. So I'll just kick it off by saying um, I found out about this band for the first time, and I want to say February of 1995, when they appeared on Saturday Night Live, which was just normally, I think in... You're talking SNL in the mid-90s. You think of like Counting Crows. You think of Live. And there was an episode that was hosted by Dan Aykroyd, who's also Canadian and friends with the band. And he just said, my friends, the tragically hip. And they proceeded <laughs> to play the song called Grace 2, which is the opening track off of uh, their 1994 Day for Night album. And I just said, what the fuck is this? <laughs> this is, it's a rock band but it's off kilter 
and they're really kind of weird and they seem old and they don't seem like they're from America. I don't know what's going on, but I'm, di- I'm digging it. <laughs> well, yeah. And that was a lot of uh, Americans first introduction to the tragically happy, even though they'd been touring in and out of the States for almost, well, not quite a decade at that point. Uh, but thanks for having me on, guys. I really appreciate it. I, I would be remiss before we, we started talking about the hip. Uh, just got to clear up a little unfinished business about uh, something that might have been said on a earlier episode about discouraging fish from coming to Toronto Uh-oh. ever again. <laughs> uh, I, uh, I, uh, I, th- I think I got to rep that first here and just, just remind everyone that even though, uh, you know, some people have come around on this summer's uh, Toronto show and uh, 2003 had the, the misfortune of getting curveballed in a way in the sense that we had a show canceled and then wedged in, uh, you know, Toronto has provided some pretty uh, memorable fish moments in the past. Was, just, was that 2013? That was 2013. Yeah, that was the flood. Yeah, okay, right. Yeah, yeah. Right. I uh, I think I'm bad luck for fish shows because uh, that and, and curveball. I've I've been in a couple of parking lots and gotten some pretty disappointing news. But uh, regardless, uh, I would encourage everyone to listen to the uh, the ghost from Live Bait that was just released this past summer as well from uh, yes. 99, which is uh, which is a gem as well. There is an official release from 92. And some other really good stuff out there. In, in true beyond the pond fashion, let me recommend uh, August 9th, 1993, which has an amazing chalk dust into uh, Bandit Gypsies, who knows, and a yem with a speed racer and smoke on the water teases. So anyway, that's that's uh, that's unfinished business. We can talk about the hip now. <laughs> um, so yeah, the tragically hip. It's uh, it, the Springsteen thing is very uh, an, a sort of an appropriate one. When I was kind of getting prepped for the the podcast, I was thinking, you know how how can how can I make that sort of spiritual connection clear to the listeners? But uh, when it comes to when it comes to the hip, not unlike fish, um, you really have to break it down into both the music. And the live experience, because that's truly what makes the the band uh, uh, a special thing. So, if you guys will permit, maybe a quick bio, and uh, and we'll we'll dig into some deeper hip talk. Absolutely, go for it. All right. So, uh, the tragically hip are the pride of Kingston, Ontario. That's uh, about an hour and a half outside our nation's capital in Ottawa. Uh, they are the vocalist and frontman Gord Downey, along with guitar player Paul Angua and Bobby, now Rob Baker. I don't think he likes to be called Bobby anymore. The other Gord, Gord Sinclair, and drummer uh, Johnny Fay. Uh, they were formed in 84, uh, and they were a fixture in the Ontario and then Canadian bar band scene. Uh, and they had, you know, Good success there, but it wasn't until their 1989 album up to here uh, that they really gained sort of the national success with uh, sort of pillar tunes in their catalogs like 38 Years Old, Boots and Hearts, Blow It High Dough, and what is a seminal, uh, tragically hip tune, uh, New Orleans is Sinking. This was also followed by the number one Canadian record, Road Apples, in 1991. And this cemented the tragically hip as the premier Canadian rock band in an era where it was still cool to be a rock band, if you know what I'm saying. Rock radio was still a thing, and uh, the hip ruled Canadian rock radio. Uh, But it's going to be the next album, fully completely in 1992, as well as Day for Night, Trouble in the Hen House, and I would even go so far as to say as Phantom Power, which sort of provide that, um, you know, as Stephen Hayden sometimes does in his podcast, they do the, you know, is it the four straight or the five straight albums that are just continually 
The, yeah, solid. That's, you know, I never even thought about that. The tragically hip would pass the five albums test. Yeah, there you go. Absolutely, I believe that. I would, I would defend that in a thesis for sure. Um, so they moved from sort of that traditional blues and rock sound and begin to experiment with more atmosphere, uh, different sound structures, uh, becoming part art rock, part roots, uh, blues, uh, ballads, but. It's here that I really have to get to the the real heart and soul of the Tragically Hip, and that is one Mr. Gord Downey. Mm. Um, he's not just vocally distinctive in his delivery, uh, delivery. More importantly, I think he is lyrically brilliant, uh, true, true rock and roll poetry in every way. And it wasn't just how he wrote. It was how he sort of baked all things Canadian into the lyrics. You had Canadian history, you had our injustices, you had our geography, our sports, our little towns. He wrote about our diverse land as he played in a band that traversed it hundreds of times uh, and got to see every sort of corner of it, bringing together the best of everything that we were. He was a master of writing vivid tales in the most abstract word and phrases, but created the most clear story from these things. Uh, he wrote about Canada and in turn, became part of that identity in the process. It's important to note as well, guys, that not all Canadians love the hip, mm. but all Canadians know the hip. And that's, uh, you know, that's important in, in and of itself, right? I think a lot of what it was, I know Gord Downey, he, um, he started to do like guest vocals on bands that you wouldn't mm -hmm. think would be associated with the hip. Like I think he sings back up on um, a fucked up album I know yeah. the last hip hop was produced uh, by Kevin Drew from Broken Social Scene. I think it was almost True. as time went on, they kind of hung around longer. I think a lot of, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think a lot of people wasn't so much the hip as it was their fans. Kind of like the stereotype of like a tragically <laughs> hip fan is a guy swirling molds and wearing like a Toronto Maple Leafs jersey. Yeah, okay. yeah. The, it, bro culture yeah. uh, before bro culture existed hoser culture let's call okay. it um but yeah i mean yes yes and no i mean i was in my early 20s during sort of the the hips heyday in the in the mid 90s there and uh you know at that time i had seen the hip um more times than i'd say seen fish for example at that point um and it, the live experience however wasn't just bro culture it was just sort of big concert culture if you will because by the time 1995 rolls around i mean they've got their own traveling festival called another roadside attraction right uh which which at one point topped out at like seventy thousand people at one point yeah wilco played on it one time that's right that's right yeah. wilco was in there um i saw uh, ziggy marley blues traveler uh, there, you know lots of bands uh jumped on the another roadside attraction but at that point me and my friends we're actually trying to get down to see them. This is around that SNL period that you were talking about too, to try to see them stateside. So we would go to like, you know, the orbit room in Grand Rapids or the, the amphitheater, at the Toledo zoo to kind of get that smaller, more intimate experience because they were huge. But the reason they were huge is that, you know, the hip was an amazing live band. Undeniably, you know, they had the energy of, of an amazing rock band. They had this arsenal of amazing songs, but um, if I'm going to talk tragically hip and the true magic of the tragically hip, it's Gord Downey 
on stage as maybe what I would say one of the last great frontmen in walk and in, in rock. And if you're if you're if your listeners are kind of looking for maybe something to to be now just with this, um, I'm thinking like Craig Finn from the Hold Steady in mm. the way that you know you just can't take your eyes off of every single thing that he's doing and saying simultaneously. Um, Gord would fly around the stage. He would dance. He would jerk, sweating, pantomiming, gesturing. Uh, one of my favorite live experiences was I saw him shadow box his mic stand, screaming, fight like a man, microphone stand. You know, and he'd flip it up with his feet and he'd box with it. And the next moment he'd be like, you know, throwing handkerchiefs into the crowds. All the while, right, there's this lyrical improvis- improvisation going on just random poems being generated on the spot, as well as the storytelling of his own songs. Always, always with the crowd completely riveted. Um, New Orleans is Sinking is what I would say is the hip's closest jam vehicle, if you would. But it's not a jam vehicle in the sense of musical improvisation. It's lyrical improvisation. Uh, Gord would invent these stories in the middle of New Orleans is sinking. Even write songs that would eventually become tragically hip songs. For example, Nautical Disaster was born in the middle of a New Orleans is sinking monologue. Uh, There's a very infamous track. I think, uh, Dave, you and I have talked about this before um, with the the infamous Killer Whale Tank uh, from the Roxy. Killer Whale Tank. (laughs) And just... Yes. Exactly. And uh, <laughs> I, I'd urge your, your listeners to, to try to seek out that version of New Orleans is sinking because it really gives you a sense for some of that improvisation. That's on YouTube, probably that's famous enough. I think that's on YouTube. There's a lot of hip on YouTube. There's, like There's a lot a, of, yeah, like a lot yeah. of classic mid nineties, late nineties stuff that you can call up. Yeah, there's some, uh, we had uh, our version of MTV was much music. Uh, there's some classic much music rips up there. Um, I, I would I to get ready for the episode. I've I've been deep diving into the into the YouTube tragically hip world. Uh, there was a concert DVD called One Night in Toronto uh, that I think was produced in the early two thousands. Uh, and if listeners want to seek out the uh, the version of uh, Blow It High Doe from that, it's uh, it's a song that they wrote in nineteen eighty nine that shouldn't have as much relevance as it does in the early aughts, and yet. Gord takes it on a six-minute ride that's just a masterclass in uh, in entertainment. I will say, I mean, the reason I got into them from that SNL performance is just that some of the stuff this guy was doing on television. I mean, I think the first thing, the first line of that song, Grace 2, is he said, I'm fabulously rich. Mm-hmm. For some reason, and he does this sometimes, but the first line on SNL was, he said, I'm tragically hip. Yes. I thought, oh, okay. These guys that are on American TV and the first thing they do is just like shout their name out. That's very hip hop. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. And then um no, just to say that album came out on it was actually came out in ninety four. I bought it in ninety five. Didn't get to see them live until college in nineteen ninety eight after the Phantom Power album came out. I saw them at a Saturday night in a nightclub in New Jersey that holds 350 people. So out of that, because it was Saturday and in New Jersey, I would say 330 people had made the drive from Canada to that show. (laughs) And they brought a Canadian flag and they were singing hockey songs. And I 
almost fear for my life at one point. <laughs> but um, it was awesome. Yeah, and that that was the other thing about the hip, and especially the hip touring in the states, is that you know Canadians were were everywhere. We were among you, mm-hmm. uh, and nothing draws out Canadians from wherever they live, other than maybe a a, a Raptors or a Jays game here and there, uh, than than a tragically hip concert back in the day. Um, it was a little way that you could sort of tap into home and 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 touch a piece of home without being home. That's for sure. Um, yeah, and I guess you know the the last thing that I guess I want to get to is the the effect that you know that you guys mentioned Gord Downey's passing on this podcast, which frankly mm-hmm. blew me away and was one of the things that you know caused me to reach out to you, Dave, for the first time. Just you know, hey, what are these guys? Hmm. No, I was I was surprised both that I, I I really was surprised by the amount of of accolades that it was getting. Like I know Eddie Vedder did a shout out. Uh, at at a, at a Pearl Jam show for Gord, and there was all this stuff floating in. Um, but imagine what it was like to be a Canadian to hear that this icon of of energy and intelligence and uh, and creativity uh, had a had a brain tumor. Um, you know, we we feared so many things and selfishly knew that we'd never get to see the hip as they were. But uh, Gord Downey's lasting legacy, and truly, um, was courage. Uh, another very famous Tragically Hip song, uh, to use his last days to record. Uh, he championed uh, the plight of Indigenous people here in Canada. He brought a lot of attention to that in his final days. And then they fired up for one last tour across Canada, all while the disease was uh, destroying his mobility and his ability to like remember his own lyrics. So uh, this is a stat that I still find incredible to this day, but the final hip show, which was broadcast on the CBC, was watched by one third of the entire Canadian population. Eleven point mm, seven million people uh, tuned in to watch. Um, and again, it, Canada's a lot like the U.S. You know, we, we've got a lot of different regions. We've got a lot of different things that w- we tend to highlight. We don't have in common with one another. But um, on that night, you know, people who had never really even seen the tragically hit before uh, turned on their uh, turned on their TVs and, and tuned in and. Um, yeah, that's why they're Canada's band. Justin Trudeau was there. He was. He called out the prime minister actually on the indigenous issues as well. Like, you know, you've got the prime minister's attention and, uh, and he pointed right at the prime minister and he said, you know, we've got to, we got to fix this. We got to, we got to do more. Yeah. And I think when he, I guess he died in early 2017. He's that last show. Mm-hmm. I think I want to say, I think it was like August 20th, 2016. I was actually, I was staying at my sister's house. I saw outside Baltimore and streamed the whole thing at her kitchen table on an iPad. And I'm just like sitting there watching this sobbing. And my brother-in-law is like, what the hell are you doing? Mm-hmm. Like, that's, it's okay. It's a band. It's a, it's a band. You, you won't understand. And then, I think they interviewed the prime minister of Canada when he died and he was like on TV crying and thinking, mm-hmm. wow, you know, I mean, yeah. I don't know that much about Canadian politics, exactly what Justin Trudeau has been doing really good or bad in the great white North, but just comparing someone having um, that like position of power mm-hmm. in Canada, having that much outpouring of grief over something of pop culture compared to what we have here now in the States it just made me very sad. <laughs> <laughs> well, Justin's right in the wheelhouse of, of, you know, 
that generation, right. which, which would have had the the hip as their their soundtrack. I mean, he he would have been right there as well. I know I was at my last hip show was on that tour, but it was in London, Ontario, and uh, it it is unlike any other concert going experience that I've ever been to, except maybe Coventry, and with that was that charged with emotion um, of, of goodbye and, and, and so on and so forth. Uh, and a lot of tears. And when they came out for the encore and they started to play Fiddler's Green, which is a song that I cover and a song that, that is, goes, cuts right to my heart. I just, I couldn't stand. I literally had to sit down, even though it was, you know, the, the fading moments of, of the concert. It really was, it was quite emotional for a lot of people. Um, that, so yeah, uh, I'm, I was going to say the whole tour was captured in um, a very good documentary mm-hmm. called Long Time Running, which is a name of a tragically hip song from that era. I think it's on the same album that uh, that Fiddler's Green happens to be on. I know, I think it's on Netflix. That's where I saw it. Yeah, I it, and it's I think it's available on YouTube because it was it was public publicly broadcast here so you should be able you might be able to find it. But I would also encourage people to seek out some earlier hip live footage just so you can see Gord in his absolute prime and appreciate the 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 pure effort that he was putting forward to to stand there. I would say in terms of beyond the pond listeners who want to hear the records, at least for me, I think I think the probably my favorite hip albums would be fully completely Day for Night and Phantom Power. Mm-hmm. And then I guess Trouble at the Hen House little more subdued didn't love it when it first came out but that's from 1995 that's a good era a lot of those songs kind of came alive on stage yeah i think phantom power is kind of like the dividing line what i think music at work came out after that and that was very lots of like production choices interesting Mm -hmm. sort of like a more arty they were had a different producer they were like trying consciously to use more keyboards and synthesizers and kind of take you out there. Still a very good record. Yeah, for sure. And, and I guess uh, the one thing I'd mention in there is also there's a live album uh, that oh, came yeah. out yeah, yeah, yeah. between uh, Trouble at the Hen House and Phantom Power called Live Between Us. that was recorded at uh, Cobo Hall in, in Detroit. And uh, I think that's for me, I like to give that as an entry point for a lot of people. Okay. Kind of like you did. Yeah. Uh, I forget what episode it was, but you mentioned like a live album of a band as, as being, you know, a good entry document. Uh, if you seek out live between us, um, that will really give you a, a sampler platter, uh, as well as give you some of the energy and the improvisation. But, um, I don't think you can go wrong with anything, uh, from up to here, uh, until phantom power for me, phantom power is sort of the, the deep cut. It's the, you know, it, it wasn't everybody's favorite, but I think it was it was mine artistically maybe uh, favorite album. But from an emotional standpoint, uh, fully completely still stands as the as the peak in the mountain. With day for night being a very very close second. Yes, yeah, they're kind of um, the only album. It's a pretty spotless discography, except they did an album, the second album with uh, the Canadian super producer Bob Rock called <laughs> We Are the called We Are the Same. And you just should never have Bob Rock produce your albums. That's all I got to say. About that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No comment there. We, no, that, it's that's that's the forgotten era. That's for sure. It's kind of like REM, and that REM had their album. Um, 
called Around the Sun. That's mm. the REM album that may as well not exist. Mm-hmm. And then they put out two more records after that, like The Hip. They put out We Are the Same. And then two more records, which were much, much better afterwards before um, before Gord Downey was diagnosed. But yeah, that's uh, if you want to know how I feel about that album, go to the website cokemachineglow.com. I yeah, I would up there. Can I can I interview the interviewer for a second? Um, yeah. So Coke Coke Machine Glow is really clearly a reference to Gord Downey's first solo album, is it not? It is. Yeah. Okay. That's um, the founder of that website, Scott Reed. Yeah. He's uh he's he's from Halifax. Yeah. It, is he the same Scott Reed that was like the communications director for like prime ministers after that, or is it a different Scott Reed? Oh, I think it'd be a different Scott Reed. Okay, because <laughs> yeah, there's no. there's there's a there's a famous communications director up here that was named Scott Reed too. But uh, yeah, no, I, Coke Machine Glow uh, again is also worth seeking out. That's uh, that's a fine solo effort by Gord Downey as well. He was actually he had a solo record I think in 2010 called The Grand Balance, which is very good, and he was going to play here in the states in New York at Barry Bar Room. And I was going to set up that I was going, going to interview him before the show. And I was, I didn't know what I was going to do. And then that entire tour got canceled. I mean, oh. at first I thought it got canceled because of poor ticket sales. But then I realized that would have been the time I think his wife had been diagnosed with cancer. Right. So in retrospect, that's probably what happened. But right. Was, did you ever see the Central Park shows at all? No, I did not. Yeah, they they played a couple of times down in Central Park. Um, hence the the song Gus the Bear from Central Park, I think was written in and around that time. Gus the Polar Bear from Central Park. Yes. Yeah. The, the third song <laughs> on, on Music at Work. Great song. Yeah. Very crazy horse. <laughs> Very much so. Well, I really appreciate the opportunity for uh, for you letting us come on and enlighten our southern neighbors about our great Canadian treasure. Thanks for coming on. This has been great. This has been um, everything I hoped. Anything we can do to um, spread the gospel of the Tragically Hip to the Beyond the Pond community. They are very much worth a deep dive. Excellent discography, fantastic live shows, and just, um, you know, something that was certainly unique to Canada. Anybody who appreciates good rock and roll will like it. We'll like them. So Awesome. Thanks, Scotty. No, thank you guys. Keep doing what we're doing. We love it. So in terms of the Tragically Hip, uh, I think the three songs we're going to feature here, let's play the lead-off track from Fully Completely being Courage. Let's listen to Grace 2 from Day for Night and then the classic ballad Bob Cajun off the Phantom Power record. So that's a fantastic overview. Awesome. Let's do it.
anything important Any of us do And yeah, the human Tragedy Consists in The necessity Of living with The consequences Under pressure Under pressure
Constellations reveal themselves one star 
guys thank you for hanging with us here in episode 76 and thank you once again to our fabulous guest in segment two scotty king what a phenomenal overview of uh the tragically hip mm. phenomenal tribute and um i'll tell you you guys did not hear me there because uh, i have far too much respect for tragically hip diehards to offer basic opinions about a band that uh similar to fish i know is uh requires obsessiveness and um i just am not there uh i like that i love everything i've heard um i have a uh, love for what they did in their final tour uh, and i love what they mean to the people of canada but um 
as someone who is not nearly as knowledgeable, I just had to step back for that and let you guys do it. You guys were phenomenal there. That was incredible. Thank you. Thank you, Scotty. Absolutely. So quick recap of the songs that we played in terms of discussing the Vancouver tweezer. Once again, big shout out to Kathleen Hinkle, our first fan. This is dedicated to you with love. In section one, talked about electrocution. We talked about LCD sound systems, dance yourself clean, major stars, I don't believe. Okay, section two with the Tragically Hip. We played Courage off of Fully Completely, Grace 2 off of Day for Night, and Bob Cajun off the Phantom Power record. All good, fantastic songs. In terms of uh, social media, we are like the national album. We are easy to find on uh, Twitter. At underscore beyond the pond, one word. Our simplecast page is beyond the pond.simplecast.fm. Of course, on Spotify, we have the Master Beyond the Pond podcast playlist. Many, many, many songs, 400 plus at this point. You can find uh, all the songs featured in many episodes. We are a proud member of the Osiris Podcast Network. You can find out all the other fantastic podcasts at osirispod.com and leave us an iTunes review. We read them and if it increases our visibility in Tim Cookland, that is good. Absolutely. So from a publishing structure standpoint, you might have noticed we took a slight bit of a step back in August. Both had a lot of go- lot going on from vacations to kiddos to just life in general. Uh, we are kicking things into high gear here in the next few weeks. We have five episodes coming out in September, and then we're going to be transitioning into a few fun things in October, November, and December, namely our top albums episode of the decade. Keep an eye out for that in late October. Top albums episode of 2019. We'll do that in uh, December per usual. Got a couple more Cypress episodes coming for you to separate, celebrate the 20th anniversary of Big Cypress, as well as um, a couple more traditional episodes, a few more guests that we've got on. We've got a lot of fun stuff coming up here as we round out the 2010s and look to the 2020s as a decade that looms in the future. Uh, oh, and as well, Fish Tour. We know that we've got Fish Fall Tour at this point in time. So we appreciate you guys listening and following along. Uh, You can find us most likely every other Tuesday. I know this came out on a Monday, but uh, in the future here as we we look to the the fall of 2019, um, every other Tuesday uh, will will remain true in a lot of cases. We'll always try to remain true in as many cases as possible. But yeah, once again, thank you, Scotty King. That was a... Really fantastic overview of one of my favorite bands of all time. It was really excellent. And um, always, if you've made it this far in the episode, we appreciate it very, very, very much. So come back. What I'm guessing is two weeks. We will hold hands. We will fight Fish Myopia. We will look forward to Fish Fall Tour. More like uh, ten shows or seven shows. I guess you can call that tour. After Thanksgiving, 
and all that will come with that. And we will go beyond the pond. Osiris.